All right, good morning again, everybody, and Merry Christmas. So, so glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to Revelation chapter 7. It may seem like a strange place to go uh, at Christmas time, um, but if you've been tracking with us through this Advent sermon series, it will make some sense. Revelation chapter 7. We've been taking a break from our normal expositional study, which has us in 2 Corinthians right now, uh, for a topical snack that hopefully has been building excitement and anticipation for this day, for our celebration of the Incarnation. That's what Advent is all about. And we're here. This is week number four. Uh, This morning, Pastor Dylan lit the fourth candle. Tonight at four o'clock at our candlelight service, I'll light the fifth candle um, because the day that we've been waiting for has arrived. Christ has been born. Uh, We know also that Christ has died for our sins and he has been raised from the dead, uh, never again to die. This year, we've tried to consider the mission of Christmas. Why did Jesus come? For whom did Jesus come? And will he accomplish that mission? Each week, we've tried to root ourselves in a Christmas text, but then also consider other passages to show us that these are not just Christmas truths. The things that we're talking about, the principles that we're laying out, are not just Christmas truths. They are themes, major themes, that run all throughout the Scripture. We've also made an effort each week to not just zoom in on the manger scene, but to zoom out and get a bigger picture of Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and his promised return that we'll talk about some today. On week one, we considered why Jesus came from Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 in particular, where the angel said to Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's why he came. He came to save his people from their sins. And so we've talked week in and week out about the mission that Jesus will save his people from their sins. We've talked about the method by which he will do that, that he will give his life as a sacrifice. And then we've talked each week about the mandate that he will send us out with the message to our neighbors, to our closest family, and even to the ends of the earth. On week two, we began to consider for whom Jesus came, and I argued that he came for those who are far away, not just those who are close at hand. From Matthew chapter 2, In the arrival of the Magi, I argued that God drew these men from far away to worship the Lord in his earliest days. God used the stars. God used ancient prophecy. God used exiled Jewish people. He used even an evil king to get these men to the place of worship. He drew them from far away. Jesus came for those who are far away, even for those who are not part of Abraham's family at all. And then last week on week three, we looked at the shepherds in Luke chapter two. And I argued that Jesus came for the least the littlest, and the lowest. We saw this principle all over the Christmas story, in fact, not just in the shepherds who hear that first announcement, but in the town where Jesus was born, in Bethlehem. We saw it in the backstories of Mary and Joseph. We saw it in the town that Jesus was from, Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You remember that? And we saw that this isn't just a Christmas theme. In his earthly ministry, Jesus was constantly reaching out, serving, helping, saving even the littlest and the least, and the lowest. And application number one we made last week seemed the most obvious, but it's actually secondary. I said, if Jesus works this way, if Jesus is constantly reaching out and serving and helping the least and the littlest and the lowest, then we should do that as well. That's exactly what we should be doing as well. And Christmas time gives us all kinds of opportunities to do that, right? But that's not the main thing. That's not the loudest thing. That's not the most important thing. Application number two is actually primary. We must never forget that we are the least. We are the lowest. We are the littlest. And he came for us. 
And that should shock us in amazement to think that God would come for us. Folks like us, it's amazing. It should humble us in gratitude. We should be very thankful that he would come for people like us. And it should also compel us to proclamation that we would go and speak this message to the whole world. I told you that we need a little more of the mindset, the posture, the attitude of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look what he says. It's a trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We've talked about that over and over, right? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But look what he says next. Among whom I am foremost of all. Some of your translations say, I am the chief. I am the chief of all the sinners. And yet for this reason, I found mercy. So that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Remember, I told you that if I was going to paraphrase that, I would say the Apostle Paul is saying, if he can save me, he can save anyone. And I want to say that. I want to say that knowing the the depth of my darkness, knowing my own depravity, and knowing God's grace in my life. If he can save me, he can save anyone. So repent of your sins and trust in Christ today. He can save you. This week we're going to consider whether or not we can have confidence that Jesus will actually accomplish his mission. He came to save his people from their sins, from the farthest away to the nearest by, from the greatest to the least. But can we have confidence that he will actually accomplish his mission? And the quick answer is yes, right? Right? (laughs) He He will accomplish his mission. That's the quick answer. But we want to walk the journey to get there and want to see how we arrive at that conclusion. So let's read together. Uh, Revelation chapter 7. This is where we're we're going to end up today. It's going to take us a while to get there, finally, but this is where we'll end up. Look at Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever amen let's pray Oh, Lord Jesus, we believe that you will accomplish your mission. We believe that you have done everything necessary and that you are even now saving men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You are redeeming for yourself a people to be an eternal kingdom. We also believe that you are using us and people like us in the work that you are doing. And we want to be faithful instruments in your hands proclaiming the good news of great joy for all the people, that you came to save your people from their sins, that you died on the cross in the place of sinners, and that you rose again in victory. Lord Jesus, open our mouths to invite our closest neighbors and the furthest nations to repent of sins and trust in you. Lord, be glorified in this place, during this time, and in our lives in every moment. We pray in your name. So we want to kind of go back today and and follow this whole journey we've been on through Advent uh, so that we can get to the place of Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 and see this great multitude standing before the Lamb and singing His praises of salvation that they have been redeemed by His blood. 
So we want to go back to why did Jesus come? And I've told you this once already. I've told you this five or six times as we've been moving through Advent. He came to save his people from their sins. Look at Matthew chapter 1, particularly verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That is what the angel tells Joseph, right? As he is uh, trying to figure out what does all this mean and how is all of this going to happen and what should I do in this moment, the angel gives him specific directions. Call that boy Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, right? Yahweh delivers, Yahweh rescues. Call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But how would he do that? How would Jesus save his people from their sins? Well, you know the answer to that question, right? He will do it by giving his life as a sacrifice and by rising again from the dead. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting verse 24 says, And he himself, that is Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. I love Pastor Peter here in this passage. He is, he is reaching back to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, bringing in all of this imagery of the suffering servant. By his stripes you, were, you will be healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, Right? It's an amazing thing. How does Jesus rescue us from our sins? By taking our sins upon himself and dying in our place as our substitute. And he didn't just die. He also rose again in victory over sin and death and hell, all that would hold us captive. And, and Paul says, we preach this. We preach this as first importance. How does Jesus rescue people? By dying and being buried and rising again. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. It says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. That word means good news, right? We're going to talk about that tonight at 4 o'clock. Good news of great joy for all the people. A Savior has been born, right? For you. He is Christ the Lord. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, the good news, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus came to rescue his people from their sins. How does he do this? By dying, by giving his life as a sacrifice, and by rising again from the dead. Amen? That's how he does it. But who are his people? Well, we've talked about this a bunch of times already right? They are the furthest away. Not just those who are nearby, not just those who are close at hand, but those who are far away. We see it in the Magi in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east, right? Almost a thousand miles away in a pagan land with some messed up belief. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we, his, we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him, right? These wise men from far, far away, God had used stars and exiled Jews and ancient prophecies to bring them to worship the Christ, the baby in a manger, who is the Savior of the world. Who did he come for? He came for those who were far away, which is good news for us, right? 
Good news for us because we are those who are far away. Not many of us in this room can trace our lineage back to Abraham. Most of us are outsiders. He came for us. He didn't just come for those who are far away, though. He came for those who are low. Not just those who are exalted in the society. Not just those who are thought much of, but those who are thought little of. Those who are outcasts and, and uh, pushed aside. Nobodies. Maybe worse than average Joes. Nobodies, right? We see that in the angels, I mean in the shepherds, that the angels speak to in Luke chapter 2. We read about this in Sunday school this morning. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said, don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Right? He came for those who are far away. He came for the little, the least, and the lowest. He came for those who are nearby also, right? And he came for those who are high. He came for all kinds of people from all kinds of places. In fact, that's what I want you to see in Revelation chapter 5. So turn over a couple pages. Turn over a couple pages to Revelation chapter 5. I want you to see here that Jesus died to save people from all kinds of places. All kinds of people from all kinds of places. Listen to the language that is used by the elders and the living creatures as they praise the lamb who was slain. Look at it, Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter just because it's so good. John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold the lion... The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb. A lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. You were slain and, with, and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Let me go back. They sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, 
to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That's good stuff, right? Here in Revelation chapter 5, what we see is the living creatures and the elders are provoked to worship, right? They're provoked to worship and they sing about the purpose of the Lamb's death. They sing about the purpose of the Lamb's death. Remember what they saw? A Lamb standing as if slain. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. The Lamb who was dead and is now alive forevermore. In fact, this is exactly the way Jesus describes himself to John at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. In fact, flip back a couple pages or look on the screen in Revelation chapter 1, right after John gets this vision of the glorified Lord with eyes of flaming fire, right? All of this incredible stuff, feet of burnished bronze, all of this power and majesty and glory, Jesus speaks. John says in verse 17, when I saw him, that's when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. This, this, is, this is another picture of what the elders and the living creatures saw, right? They saw a lamb standing as if slain, a lamb who had died and is alive. And Jesus says, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I am the living one. That's the way he describes himself. He was slain. This lamb was slain and purchased for God with his blood, as the elders and living creatures say, purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Don't you love that they say it that way? Don't you love that the living creatures don't say, you died and purchased for God with your blood men from Abraham's family tree? Or rich men? or prominent men, or Americans. No, they sing because the lamb that was slain purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, right? And this is good news and a fulfillment of what was promised about this one from the very beginning. In fact, you looked at this a few weeks ago in small group Bible study in Genesis chapter 3. The promise of one who would come and redeem men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right after the curse. Look what it says in Genesis 3.15. As God speaks to the snake, the curse upon the snake, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Not seeds, but seed. And he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Scholars refer to that phrase as the proto-evangelion, the very first gospel. The very first gospel is a promise of a seed of the woman who would come and put his foot on the head of the snake. Now, sure, the snake might bite him on the heel. That's the promise, right? There would be an injury, but he will put his foot on the snake's head and crush his head. When we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the divine snake crusher has come. And he crushes the head of the snake by his death and resurrection. This is a promise from long ago that one would come and ransom for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We see it in the promise to Abraham even. 
In fact, sometimes, sometimes when we think about Christmas time, especially if you were in Jesus' day and age and you were Jewish in background, you would think about the Messiah who was coming for Abraham's descendants, right? You would think about the Messiah who was coming to ransom Israel from captivity, ransom Israel from, from their bondage. But even in the very first promise that God makes to Abraham, he makes it clear that I intend to bless the whole world through you. Not just you and your descendants. I'm not just making a promise, Abraham, to you and your descendants, but I'm making a promise to the whole world through you. And that promise is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. It's the very first, very first promise to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, his name wasn't even Abraham yet, see? The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And listen to this. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth. Maybe another way to say that would be every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be blessed through Abraham's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised seed who would overcome and who would rescue. The lamb was slain and purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Right? That, that's what the elders and the living creatures are, are rejoicing over. They're reflecting on and they're provoked to praise by this, by this statement of the purpose of Jesus' death. Died and purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The question that I want us to wrestle with today is will he get this done? Right? Will he actually rescue men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation? Will he accomplish his mission? And the answer is yes, right? The answer is yes, he will do this, but we need to look at it even more closely. Maybe the first thing we need to consider is if he's going to do this, if he's going to rescue people from their sins by his death, burial, and resurrection, we need to consider, did he die? Did he die on the cross? Was he buried? And did he rise again? And the answer to that is, yes, he did. Yes, he did. This is not a myth. That was my favorite line in Sunday school this morning from Lifeway. Like Luke lines up all this, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. Quirinius was a governor of Syria. This is the first census taken while that was going on. He's lining up all of these uh, historical facts to show you that this is not a myth. The story doesn't go, once upon a time in a land far, far away. No, it goes, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. Like all of these historical facts lining up. In fact, that's Luke's whole purpose in writing his gospel. Look at Luke chapter 1. Luke's whole purpose in writing his gospel is to get eyewitness accounts and write down the facts about Jesus' life, the facts about Jesus' death, the facts about Jesus' resurrection. Look what it says in Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. You catch that? So that I've investigated it all. I've talked to eyewitnesses so that you can know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Did he die? Was he buried? Was he raised? Yes, Luke investigated it. And he wrote it down so that you could know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. 
And it wasn't just Luke. It was the Apostle Paul as well. You know that right after he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and that he was raised again. On the third day according to the scriptures, he goes on and he says, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Do you catch what Paul is doing there? He's saying he really did die, and he really was buried, and he really did rise again. And there are all kinds of eyewitnesses. This is not a story we're making up. He appeared to Cephas, and then... 12, and then 500, and then me, last of all, and least of all, he appeared to me also. This is incredible, right? Did he die? Was he buried? And did he rise again? Yes, he did. And that is how he saves his people from their sins. So that leads to the next question. Will he save his people? Will he save his people far and low? Will he save his people near and high? Will he save his people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation? And the answer is yes. And that leads us back to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9. Look at this again. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. In Revelation 5 that we looked at earlier, we saw the living creatures, we saw the elders, we saw myriads and myriads of angels singing about how the lamb was slain and purchased for God men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. But in that passage, those redeemed people do not make an appearance. In in Revelation chapter 5, the redeemed people don't make an appearance. It's just a statement about the purpose of his death. But here, they appear. So in chapter 5, one might, one might question, well, did he, did, he act, did he actually redeem people for himself? Here in Revelation chapter 7, we say, yes, he did. There's no doubt about it. There's a great multitude that no one can count. Can you imagine that? Like he seems to count the angels, right? He seems that the number of angels, myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. But here he describes a great multitude that no one can count. And where are they from? Everywhere. Right? All kinds of people, every nation and all tribes and tongues and peoples. And where are they? They're before the Lamb. They are dressed in white. How do they get white clothes? He gave them to them. They didn't earn them. They didn't clean them themselves. They were granted these white clothes by the grace of God. They're waving palm branches. They're singing praises. This is us around the throne forever and ever singing praises to the Lamb. Here in Revelation chapter 7, we get a sneak peek at the end of the story. And what we would say is, mission accomplished, right? Why did he come? He came to save his people from their sins. How will he do that? By giving his life and rising again. Will he get it done? Yeah, he will. Yeah, he will. Great multitude that no one can count from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Paul Chitwood, who is the president of the International Mission Board, often says, from the Great Commission until this great multitude, 
We, the people of God, must unite in the great pursuit to reach every nation, no matter the cost. From the Great Commission to this great multitude, we unite in the great pursuit to reach every nation, no matter the cost. You know what he's talking about in the Great Commission, right? Matthew chapter 28, Jesus, after he has died and risen again, before he ascends to the Father, he came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the great commission to the great multitude, there is this great pursuit. Right now, there are over 8 billion people in the world. 8 billion people living in 195 different countries, speaking over 7,000 different languages. 8 billion people, 195 countries, 7,000 languages. And today, right now, more than half of those people have yet to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the great pursuit. 59% of the world today are considered unreached, meaning that largely Jesus is unknown to 4.6 billion people. 4.6 billion people have not heard about this good news of great joy that's for all the people. So we join in this great pursuit. We talk about unreached people groups. This is what we're talking about. 4.6 billion people. But you need to know that there are over 3,000 groups of people, nations, tribes, tongues. There are over 3,000 of those groups around the world who have no missionary presence at all and likely no gospel access at all because no one is engaging them. No one is going to them. We call these unengaged, unreached people groups. You'll see that abbreviated sometimes, UUPG, unengaged, unreached people groups. That means there, there's no missionary there. There's no one trying to take the gospel to them. And the International Mission Board has recently launched a new initiative they're calling Project 3000. In classic IMB fashion, they refer to it generally as P3K. That's the way the IMB goes. Project 3000 is an effort to send out 300 missionary explorers over the next five years to engage 10 unengaged, unreached people groups each. And the goal is for these unengaged, unreached people groups to be found, like put on a map, and known. Missionary explorers, these workers, will find out where these people live, learn something about their culture, discern whether or not they can read, share the gospel with them, develop ministry strategies, become prayer warriors, develop national partners. These explorers are going to play a key part in entry. The missionary task, first step is you got to get in. We're not even trying to get in with these 3,000 groups. This is the most exciting thing I'm hearing from the IMB recently, is this initiative to, to try to find young people, uh, recent college graduates, folks who are unattached, <laughs> basically, to say, hey, we're going to give you a map and we're going to give you a backpack, and we're going to send you out. And for weeks at a time, you'll be hiking and exploring and trying to find these unreached, unengaged peoples that no one has reached out to before and establish a connection with them. Be out for four weeks, 
and back for a couple of weeks to report and then launch back out. Now, that, that ministry sounds terrifying to most people. But to someone in this room, you're like, sign me up. And if that's you today, I will sign you up. We will get you signed up. We need 300 folks to do that, to engage 10 of these unengaged, unreached people groups so that men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be around the throne. How, how will they believe in Jesus if they've never heard about Jesus? And how will they hear about Jesus if people like us don't go tell them? It's part of what we have been called to do. It's part of what we are equipped to do. And it's part of what we are expected to do. So here's the application today. Pray, give, go. We talk about this all the time. Be zealous senders or zealous goers. Don't be disobedient. Be involved by praying. Be involved by giving. Be involved by going. But listen, based on the text today, do that with high confidence. Do that with the utmost confidence. Like if you sign up to be one of those 300 explorers, do it with confidence that he's going to rescue and redeem men from all of those tribes and all of those peoples and all those languages that you're going to visit. He has purchased them with his blood. And so you're not going in wondering, oh, will, will, will this be effective? Will people be redeemed? Will they be saved? Will they be converted? No, you go in with confidence because he's already told us the end. And there will be people from every tribe there. We pray and we give and we go with great confidence because he has died and purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So we respond to this by praying and giving and going with high confidence. We also respond to this text today by rejoicing and celebrating. Rejoicing and celebrating. Church, you are part of that multitude. That multitude that sings about salvation from our God. That sings to the lamb who was slain. We are part of that multitude by grace alone. And that's the source of our great joy. That's the source and the reason for our celebration, especially at Christmas time. Christmas time is not just about a baby in a manger. It's not just about a virgin giving birth miraculously. It's about a Savior who would live a life that we cannot live, die the death that we certainly deserve to die, and rise again in victory over sin and the grave. All those enemies that we could never conquer, He has conquered. He's defeated them for us. He's given us his righteousness. He's cleansed us from our sins. He's adopted us as sons into his family. He's promised us eternal life. And that's the very best gift you could ever receive, right? The gift of eternal life, the free gift of God that is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so if you've received that gift, oh, rejoice. Rejoice and celebrate the grace of God in your life. And if you have not received it, I want to offer it to you today. I want to invite you to receive the, the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life today. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. What we have earned because of our sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I still am a gifts guy at Christmas time, right? I like to get gifts. I like to talk about gifts. And I want to tell you about the greatest gift ever, forgiveness of sins eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Repent of your sins and trust in him. Receive it today. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, we thank you that we can, we can pray, we can give, we can go to the nations, to our neighbors with confidence that people will be saved. 
Because you, Lord Jesus, died. And with your blood purchased for God men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we see them around the throne in the end, praising the Lamb. So help us to give and go and pray with confidence. Help us as your people to rejoice and celebrate your grace in our lives, especially here at Christmas time. And we pray that you would grant the greatest gift ever today to men and women and boys and girls in this room or listening from afar, that you would grant them the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That you would give them faith to trust in Jesus, that you would give them repentance to turn from their sins, that you would open their eyes to your holiness and their sinfulness, that you would teach them that Jesus really did die and he really was buried and he really did rise again from the grave and he really did it for them in their place to save them. And we pray that you would work in ways that only you can today so that only you will receive the glory and honor because only you deserve it. pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to sing. You know this song, Sing Along. This is not to be a concert, right? Uh, We want to sing along. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin.